to the book of Proverbs and uh, hear what God wants to say to us from that amazing uh, book of the Bible. So let's pray. How many here tonight, as we pray, you want to live a far more successful life in 2020 than you ever have before? Anybody up to living a successful life? You know, yeah, I have my hand up. So we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that tonight, how to live wisely or successfully in this coming year. And my prayer has been, and I've even had the men in our group pray, that our church family would actually embrace this concept and allow your obedience to God's way of thinking and living to allow you to become the cream. Anybody wanna be the cream? Isn't that great? That we can rise to the surface and that we can be people that have an amazing impact and influence in our community. So I'm looking at the great influencers in 2020. So I'm gonna ask God to open our hearts that we'll hear his voice speaking into our lives. So Father, that's my prayer today, that we will hear you, we will say yes to your call, we will embrace, Lord, wisdom like we never have before, that we'll begin to renew our minds in your word so that we can understand your ways. And as we do that, as we comply with it, as we embrace it, as we apply it into our lives, Lord, may we experience the effects and the benefits and the fruit of this divine wisdom in our lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. Now, I love the way the Bible frames truth. Many times it's through story. You know, I think we learn the best through examples and uh, people's lives and we learn powerful truths of what to do and what not to do. And so, um, you know, the Bible does teach us, I think, uh, the things that we should be valuing in our lives. And we see it lived out. It's always more dynamic when it's fleshed out in people's lives. And I think that's why the Bible is so filled with narrative. You know, the, most, most, uh, the, the largest literary genre in the entire scriptures is actually narrative. It's stories. How many like stories? I really love stories. I learn from stories. I learn from people, you know, what to do, what not to do. And just by looking at their lives and tr hopefully not... Uh, making the same kinds of mistakes. And I think it's important that uh, we allow God's wisdom, biblical wisdom, which is really the fear of God to govern our lives and our decisions. I would argue with most people that for the vast part of our lives, our decisions are actually what's defining our lives. So if we make good decisions, it's gonna have a powerful impact down the road. If we're making you know, unhealthy decisions, sinful decisions, unwise decisions, those things are gonna come back to bite us. And so that's why we're trying to learn. You know, we're trying to learn from other people's mistakes, not to make them ourselves. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, every decision is either marked by how we respect God and embrace his way, which is the way of wisdom, which that wisdom, you know, is really coming from above. Now, there's two types of wisdom that we read in Scripture. There's the divine wisdom, and then there's earthly wisdom. And we recognize that some people actually are quite shrewd. They're, they're, you know, they know how to navigate through life. They, they actually do things to their advantage, many times at the expense of other people. And we see even at the very beginning in the Bible uh, how important decisions are. Remember the story of Adam and Eve. Wasn't that all about a decision? And Adam and Eve made uh, a decision because they were seduced by the wisdom from below. It says the, the, the serpent was more crafty than any other creature 
and he deceived them into making a terrible decision, and that decision actually cost them their lives. And that's the truth. If we make wrong decisions, they actually have a terrible ramification in their life. But if we make the right decisions, that's my hope today, that in 2020, we're going to make great decisions. We're going to make decisions from the wisdom that comes from above, and it's going to have a powerful impact. Now, there's, you know, it's interesting. Uh, in the book of Genesis, we have the story of two men. And these two men, actually the Bible says, are godly. But one of them makes, I think, a decision based on who he is and his value system, while the other person is also making the decision based on who he is and his value system. Even though he's declared to be godly in the scriptures, we're gonna see that he probably doesn't make the right decision. And it's found in the book of Genesis in chapter 13. It's the story of Abram and Lot. Abraham is uh, Lot's uncle, and they're traveling together through the land of Canaan. And it says, now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. So in the ancient world, wealth was measured by how many flocks you had, your, your animals. And even in Africa today, that's, that's part of the measurement. Some tribes are measure how many cows you have. That's the measure of your wealth. And this is certainly true in the Old Testament here. And so both of these uh, individuals, Abram and Lot, they, had, you know, they were wealthy when it came to their time because of, they had great herds. And you know, if you know anything about grazing and animals, you know that only, you have to have so much land to support the grazing of these herds. And now we read... Because their herds were so great, it wasn't possible for them to stay together because they'd be overgrazing the land. And so it became problematic. In the very next verse, which I don't have on the slide, their herdsmen began to quarrel with each other. So in verse 8, Abram says to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Now how many already can see that Abram is concerned about what? He's concerned about relationships. He's concerned about people. He's concerned about having uh, the right kind of healthy relationships. So he's gonna make a decision now based on that value. And he turns to his nephew and he says to him, is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. What's he saying to him? He says, it doesn't matter what place you choose, I'll take whatever you don't. What's he showing us? He's generous, he's kind, he's concerned, he wants to have a healthy relationship. It's not about what's best for Abram. Abram is concerned about what's best for them collectively. And what I learn about divine wisdom is wisdom, God's kind of wisdom, isn't just concerned about ourselves, it's also concerned about how these decisions are gonna affect people around us, and we're gonna see that. So now we learn something about where Lot's coming from in the next verse. He, Lot looked around, and he saw that the whole plain of Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord. In other words, it was very lush. And it was like the land of Egypt. The Nile area is a very lush area. As a matter of fact, you fly over top of it today, it's brown, and then you get close to the Nile and it becomes green. I mean, it's very lush. So he saw that this part of the world, the, the part that he was gonna choose, was actually economically advantageous to him. And so he made that as a choice. Now, I don't think at this moment, you know, that would have been terrible, but it reveals something about what Lot was like. He was looking for, in his mind, what was best for him, and so he chose that part. The unfortunate part was, it says that he pitched his tent 
towards Sodom. And that Bible reveals us here, this was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. I was so struck when I was reading this year, and it kind of hit me. God was really getting concerned about what was going on there, and he allowed an invading army to attack Sodom and Gomorrah. By this time, Lot's tents now are not just facing the community, Lot is now living in the community. How many know that there's a digression happening in Lot's life? And you see, I think that happens a lot to us as believers. You know, we start out, you know, we have a certain attitude, and if we don't check certain uh, impulses in our lives, if we don't address certain values that are incorrect in our lives, eventually those things move us away from what God has for us. And we can see this movement in Lot's life. Even though Peter tells us later on that Lot is a righteous man, he's struggling with some things in his life, and it's gonna cost him, and we're gonna see that, because he's gonna continually put what he thinks is an advantageous situation to himself, but he's actually putting his family in jeopardy. And how many recognize that people do that all the time? Many times that you know, people put you know, uh, their work ahead of their families, and for many people, that's actually cost them their families, and we've seen that over the years. So Lot does this, and uh, the kings raid, you know, they you know, take, the, take the, them into captivity. Abram runs out and he rescues his nephew and restores them back. And then we read, they go back to living in the city and things just get worse. Isn't that amazing how often, you know, God's trying to address people and then rather than listen in obedience and be corrected, what do we do? We just continue to rebel against God and things only deteriorate until finally Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And what happens is that Lot who chose you know, what he thought was economically advantageous, he loses everything except for his two daughters. How many say that's kind of a tragedy? He lost everything. So here he starts out you know, with the herds that were you know, overflowing, and you know, he just wasn't content. He just kept you know, digressing until finally he loses everything in the process, and we've seen that so often in life. Now, when we put... Uh, it says here, when Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east and the two-parted company. When we put God first and value what God values, we will be blessed by him in every area of our lives. You know, God is always concerned about our priority. And priorities are always revealed by the decisions we make. And that's why God keeps giving us choices. We have the opportunity to make decisions, and every decision is actually a reflection of our value system. No amens on that, huh? It's the truth. Every decision you and I make is a heart reflection of our value system. So that's why I, what I'm sharing today I think is extremely valuable, that we need to say, God, I want to have a right kind of a heart. I want to embrace the right kind of values. I want to have an understanding of your way. I want to embrace your wisdom because if I do this, you know, if I put God first and put his kingdom above everything else, all the other things in my life that I think I need and probably do need, God says, I'll provide for you. And so it's an issue of priority. You know, I always find it interesting when people say, well, I don't have time for this. And all I'm thinking in my mind is, no, what you're telling me, that's not my priority. Because I've learned over the years, we all do what we want to do. We just have various different priorities in life. So, we're about to discover here in the first part of Proverbs 8, the critical nature of responding to what we call wisdom's call. Because right now, I think we're confused in this culture that there's many different options. And I think the culture keeps showing you all these options. And what I'm gonna try to argue, and I have been trying to argue through Proverbs, is that there's only two options. 
There's either God's way or it's not God's way. It's either we walk in biblical wisdom, divine wisdom, or we're embracing an earthly wisdom. You see, we have an option, but it's either we do what God wants or we don't do what God wants. We do God's will or we don't. It's just two things. And so the, the, the sooner we get that fixed in our mind, the, more pro, more, the easier it is for us to discern what's going on. We start learning what God's values are and we embrace those things and we make decisions based on those situations. So I'm gonna look at three reasons why we need to embrace, and I'm gonna, I didn't put divine wisdom, but it should be, it's God's wisdom, it's divine wisdom. And the first one is that this call is directed to all of us. It's an inclusive call. Uh, here in Proverbs 8, we find actually a literary device called personification. Some of you remember taking English and they explained to you, when, you personif when, when something is personified, what you're doing is taking an attribute and you're giving it human characteristics. And so here we have wisdom spoken of as a woman. And I've already mentioned this numerous times, but for maybe you that are new today, the reason why uh, wisdom is a woman is because in the Hebrew language, the word wisdom is chokmah, which is the feminine gender. And so wisdom then is seen as a woman. And she's calling out for people to listen to her. And she's described here as a woman endeavoring to help humanity. Isn't that beautiful? So her goal is to speak so that we'll respond and, and, and answer in the affirmative. Yes, I'm gonna hear what you're saying to me. So let's take a look. We're gonna look at 21 verses really quickly tonight, beginning in Proverbs chapter eight. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you there in the pew. Let's take a look at verse one. Does not wisdom call out does not understanding raise her voice? Obviously, wisdom and understanding here are being used interchangeably. They're kind of a similar idea, synonymous concept. It says, at the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. So here we see that she's speaking to everyone. She's not excluding a single person. So God's wisdom, God's, basically God's voice, he's calling out to all of humanity. And we know from scripture that God does not want to exclude one person. It says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So God is all inclusive. He's bringing people to himself. But we have to come to God on his terms, not ours. And that's the big problem we have as human beings. We, we want to come to God. We want God to be our helper, but we want, to, we want God to serve us on our terms. When in reality, that's upside down. You and I are the created. We need to come to God on his terms. And we need to hear his call for an, an invitation to join him as he's calling out to us to embrace his wisdom. Now, it's interesting that there are certain localities that are described here. And I, I want to just remind us of something. If you were to go back to chapter 7, what you would find is Lady Folly, and she's like a seductress lurking about at night, looking for the unsuspecting, naive person that she can proposition, seduce, and destroy in the process. And so the end result of that exchange is death. And isn't that true with all sin in our lives, that it comes at us, it seems attractive, it seems like it's something we might want, and then all of a sudden it bites into our lives, and at first it may be pleasurable, but eventually it ends in death. And that's exactly what happens in chapter seven. Now we have the opening of chapter eight, and there's a contrast between these two women. Here she is, Lady Wisdom, she's standing at the highest places. Uh, I just go back to chapter seven. You know, and I get this little diagram. Here's a prison, you know, 
Lady Folly is filled with deception and lies to seduce and destroy her victims. And isn't that the way it is with sin? You know, we take, we get involved in sin and it has a power to it and it eventually creates addictions. And we see our culture is filled with addiction. And we're all walking around talking about how bad these things are and how we want to help people. And yes, we do want to help people, but we have to recognize how did we get there and what's the real answer to be delivered from these addictions? And the real answer is Jesus Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this condition that I'm in? Christ is the answer for what's happening in our world today. So we need to understand God wants to release us and bring freedom into our lives. And that's why Jesus said in John's gospel, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. God wants us to walk in freedom, but our culture today wants to have freedom to sin. And the problem with that is that when you sin, it leads to addiction. The gospel's promising freedom from sin so that you and I can live in absolute freedom and enjoy life to its fullest. As Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that to the fullest. Now we notice here, wisdom is actually speaking to whoever will listen to her appeal from the highest places. She's at the high point. And so she's visible. She, you know, wants to be heard. Her call is to be heeded, to be listened to, to be applied. She's asking us to be her follower, her disciple, her learner. But I notice she's not coercing us. She's not pressuring us. She's trying to persuade us. And how many of us a big difference between coercion and persuasion? She's trying to persuade us. And so God never makes us do the right thing. How many notice that? He's always telling us what the right thing is, but he never makes us do it. But you know, sin makes us do it. Makes us do the wrong thing. The thing I don't want to do, Paul says I do. Why? Because of the power of sin. Isn't that amazing? It's manipulative and it's coercive in its nature. Then I notice she's not only speaking from the highest places, but also at the crossroads of life. Look at where it says, verse, verse two, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. In other words, where people assemble. So this is not being done in the dark. It's being done in the broad ways and the marketplaces of life. And here we see this mass audience and she's delivering her message. She's not doing this in secret. She's doing it openly. And then I write, we must ignore wisdom's message in order to move past her. Isn't it amazing that people actually know the right thing, but for us to do the wrong thing, we gotta ignore the right thing? Come on now, isn't that the truth? Sure it is, and we do it all the time. You know, how many people go by and go, I know this isn't the right thing to do, but I'm gonna do it anyways. So people are ignoring her call. They're pushing her aside and going, nope, I'm gonna do what I wanna do here. But her voice cannot be silenced. I like what David Hubbard, he's an Old Testament scholar, he says that she has no intention of letting her righteous cause be drowned in the sea of wicked propositions that threaten to engulf the young. Propositions from greedy savages. Now, I probably wouldn't use the word savages. I'd probably put the greedy gang, because in chapter one, that's who's enticing. The crowd, the voice of the multitude, the, the world's system, the, the voices of our culture screaming to us to join them and to embrace life to its fullest and not really care about what happens to other people as long as we get ours. Really, that's the call of our culture. You know, from lying speech, from the women of smooth words, from the perverters of righteousness, from the wretches who sow discord. You know, wisdom is trying to keep us from all of these voices. She's trying to explain to us, don't go there. But she's also speaking at the gate leading into the city. Now, you know, for us who are just reading our Bibles, we read that, which, oh, that's interesting. But it's a lot more significant than we realize because in the Old Testament, gates had a very profound meaning. 
The gates were the places of civic business. And archaeologists have uncovered today that within the city gates there are structures where there are rooms set aside. And some of them, you know, I've, I've been to Israel. Some of you have come with me, excuse me. And, and you know, the archaeologists will explain to you these were either used, rooms were used for soldiers, but they were also rooms that did civic business. A lot of business transpired. So when you're reading in the Bible, that they're at the gates, it's actually speaking of a transaction of some kind. And we know that for a fact when we read the story of the book of Ruth and where, remember, Boaz now is gonna try to, you know, purchase the property of his dead relative but also secure the hand of Ruth in marriage, the dead, the, the man's widow. And, uh, and so we read here, Boaz goes up to the town gate but he points out to her there's one kinsman redeemer closer to her. He has first rights to this land and to her hand. And it says, he says to the man, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and he sat down. And then we read, and then Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. So they were at the city gate. See, he went up to the town gate. That's where the, the business transactions occurred. So when we read that in the Bible, we get a clue what's actually happening there. Wisdom, actually, according to Dr. Walke, points out, makes her appeal to people to decide for ethical and religious prudence before engaging in the city's commerce and politics and to nerve them to resist the wicked men and women within it. He says, what he's basically saying is this, that before you and I grow up and have to, you know, you know have a job and then enter into the, the running of a community, we need to have secured wisdom. How many think that's probably wise? Before we enter in and engage with people, we need to walk in divine wisdom. Because if we don't do that, we're going to be seduced by the ways of this world. The wisdom of this world, it sounds so compelling, but actually it's diminishing to human beings. And there's always winners and losers. And I'm going to try to argue that with divine wisdom, people who embrace divine wisdom try to create win-win context. They try to do things what's best for everyone and not just what's best for themselves. And uh, that's tragic when people don't do that. But let me move on. Uh, in other words, when I'm talking about this wisdom, I'm talking about reminding us what is divine wisdom? It's to fear God. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Remember that? So what I'm trying to get at is if you don't have the fear of God inside of you, you lack God's kind of wisdom. And so what we're making every decision based on the idea that I want to respect God in this decision. I want to do what honors God in this decision. Could you imagine that every day we got up and we said, okay, every decision today I'm going to make is going to honor God. What would happen if in your life and my life that every decision we made every single day was a decision to honor God? What kind of a life do you think we'd lead? And what kind of an impact would we have on the people around us? And I believe that if you and I live like that, we're going to be like cream. You know, when you're, you know, in the old days when they did, you know, they milked the cows, you know, cream actually rises to the surface. You know what my prayer for you as a congregation this year is? That you're all going to become cream. That you're going to be those kind of people who are going to make decisions based on the fear of God. And you're going to do that daily to such a degree that it's going to have such an impact on the people around you. They're going to go, wow, I can't believe how your life is working. I, I just see so much. Uh, you just make such good decisions. How do you do that? And I believe that God's going to give you favor in the eyes of your coworkers, your neighbors, your friends around you. You're going to have amazing influence because you're going to walk in the fear of God. But let me move on to point number two. And the second reason we need to embrace God's wisdom is because of the nature of that wisdom. 
And it is really a lot different than what we think of compared to what humans do. As a matter of fact, when I look at the New Testament, I'm going to go there to define it. Probably one of the most uh, interesting people in the New Testament is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote a letter called the Book of James. And James is actually a very godly person, and he is really shaped by this wisdom literature. Notice what he writes here in chapter 3 of his book. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? Do you hear any echoes from uh, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 1? Yeah, he says, listen to me and you're going to gain understanding and wisdom. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good life. So here's what he's saying. When you walk in wisdom, it affects the kind of life you live. The kind of life you live is reflecting the kind of wisdom you're operating from. He says, let them show up by their good life, by deeds done in humility. We're going to read in a few verses how wisdom hates arrogance and pride. But people who are walking in divine wisdom are learning how to depend on God, and they're walking in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. So now we see that there's a wisdom that comes from this world that's not the truth, it's a lie, and that it's predicated on this whole idea of what's best for myself. It's very selfish in its nature and many times is operating out of envy towards other people. Verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, and it's demonic. It's roots and origin coming from the pit of hell. Verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Isn't that? That's the fruit of earthly wisdom. It creates destructions in relationships. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys churches. It destroys organizations. It's, it destroys countries. That's what happens when you operate in earthly wisdom. And then it says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, peace-loving. I love this. Consider it submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. How many say to have a leader like that? Isn't that a beautiful type of person that would be leading with those attributes in their lives? But that's, that's, that's divine wisdom. And that's how God leads us. That's the characteristic of who God is. And it says, peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. So here in our Proverbs text, we're going to discover these benefits as it's described. Beginning in verse 5, it says, You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Now, I think we could easily read that verse and go, that doesn't apply to me. I'm not foolish, right? But, you know, David Hubbard, who's an Old Testament scholar, he writes this, that none of us are beyond the capability of doing foolish things. Or in the Old Testament, to be a fool is to be someone who sins. How many know foolish things are sinful things? We need to understand that. Let me ask a question. How many here, you probably in your mind know that in 2019, you probably did a few foolish things? You, you say, well, what do you mean? Sinful things. We just said the wrong thing. We weren't thoughtful. We didn't think it through. We said hurtful things, offensive things, right? It's easy to do. We, we sinned last year somewhere, you know, you can't tell me that you guys made it through 2019. There was no foolish things in your life. Oh, I'm sure we did something there, Pastor. And I like what Hubbard says. He says, every human being has great capacity for simple-minded foolishness. The address is not specifically to a group of naive or wicked persons, but to all of us who carry the constant potential of foolish conduct. So what is he saying? This applies to all of us. 
Don't dismiss this. What he's about to say applies to every single person in the room, including the pastor. I can't get beyond this. I can do the same stupid stuff. So, you know, what do I need to learn? I need to gain prudence. I love that word, prudence. You know, it comes from an old Latin word. It means to see ahead. How many would like to be able, you know, isn't hindsight a great teacher? How many said, you know, if I knew what I know today, I probably wouldn't make some of the decisions I made yesterday? Isn't that the truth? You know, isn't it great to be able to see ahead? That's called prudence. Like God would give us this prudence, the ability when we're making the decision to get an understanding of how this decision is going to impact our future. Isn't that good? So how do I get that kind of prudence? I need to seek God's wisdom. God says, if you seek my wisdom, it'll give you prudence. I like that. As a matter of fact, Dr. Longman points out, Prudence describes one's ability to use reason in context and under the fear of God to navigate the problems of life. Anybody here have any problems in this life? Okay, how many would like to navigate your problems successfully? How many would like, you know, think of your life as you're in the canoe going down the river. Life is the river. You're going to hit rapids up ahead. How many don't want to capsize the canoe and drown in the process or lose all your goods while you're going down, down river, right? You see, God, I need some prudence here. I need your wisdom to navigate my life correctly. Prudence carefully considers the situation before rushing in. In other words, we're not gonna just make impulsive decisions. And then it's, we go on and read in verse six. Listen, I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. So we know that divine wisdom is saying the right things. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. Wow. So now we see that God's wisdom means that we're not going to say what's false. We have to speak the truth. Even though we may have to say it in a loving way, we're still going to speak the truth. And, you know, sometimes when we read these things, when it says, a little later on, she says, I hate pride and arrogance. You know, a lot of times we're looking at other people that are full of pride and arrogance. But what I think what we need to do is look at this and say, do I have pride and arrogance? Am I speaking with perverse lips? We, ex- we start by evaluating ourselves long before we look at other people. You know, how many know that there's probably nothing that undermines relationships than falsehood, lies? Isn't that true? Because it diminishes trust. And uh, you know, when people lie to us, eventually we just don't trust them anymore. And what does that do? It destroys relationships. And when relationships are destroyed, community is destroyed. And that's why a lot of times we have problems with leaders who tell us things that aren't true, and then they, we have no, they have no credibility and we don't trust them anymore. Isn't that true? So how important is it, you know, I mean, that's on the leadership level, and we'll get there in a minute, but how about in our own personal lives that we can diminish our credibility with other people by what we do or do not say, you know, by if we're going to speak the truth or not speak the truth. Divine wisdom speaks the truth. It rejoices in what's true. That's what true love is all about, rejoicing in what is the truth. Uh, Paul Koptik says it this way, wisdom's first concern is for the ethical component of her speech not whether her words are persuasive or effective. Advertisers, politicians, and preachers alike would do well to follow her model. Too often what the world wants is wealth and power when what it needs is truth. How many say that's the truth? You know, it's not what I want to hear, it's what I need to hear. I need the truth in life. And our culture does not want to hear the truth. It says, just give me the money, you know. (laughs) Give me the power, but don't give me the truth. I don't want to hear it. And yet, divine wisdom says, what I'm going to give you to start with is a full dose of reality. Here's the truth. And when you embrace this truth, it sets you free in order for you to help other people to become free. 
Verse 9, he says here, to the discerning, all of these words are right. All of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. And then we have an appeal to embrace wisdom over material and temporal wealth. And I've already used that illustration of Abram and Lot. You see, verse 10, it says, choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rupees and nothing you desire can compare with her. Well, what's, what's he saying? He's saying, look, don't make the stupid decision of putting the things of this world above the things of God. You know, Jesus said something very profound. I think he's taking these two Proverbs and he's saying it this way. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and then all these other things will be added to you. Here's the problem. God is not against wealth. This is what you need to hear. But what we tend to do is put wealth above God's kingdom and we lose both the wealth and the kingdom when in reality what we should be doing is putting God's kingdom first and then we get the kingdom and then eventually God's blessing and you know, the things that we need to live on will certainly come to us. God will provide for us. As a matter of fact, I'm amazed at how many people over time when they live in divine wisdom end up being quite wealthy. Isn't that interesting? But you have to have the right priority. And so if it's about wealth, see, that's what I'm, my, one of my deep concerns is a lot of Christians, it's about the wealth, not about the kingdom. And so if we can get the priority right, eventually God will provide for those other things. But can I just say to you, do you think all the money in the world is going to make you happy? You know, you can't take it with you. So you might as well have the right priority and let God take care of you in the process. Just put God's kingdom in its right place. Now, Paul Coptic points out the danger of choosing materialism over the kingdom of God. He says, if we live only for the goods of this world, we might be convinced that greater accumulation of wealth are good. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that kind of what our culture is at right now? We're just trying to accumulate as much as we possibly can because in our minds, we're convinced that this is a good thing. But while wisdom is not opposed to securing wealth and honor, she resists it when it's done for its own sake. In other words, to seek the goods of this world as the ultimate goal of life is not only to miss the greater goods for which we were created, but also to make ourselves open to two great dangers, which are number one, to squander our love on objects that cannot love us back. Now think about all the people who've gone out to make a lot of money and they lost their family in the process. Can I ask you a question? Do you think cars and houses can love you back? Only people can. So what is this telling you? Make people the priority. Are you catching on? Because that's what God does. By the way, God makes people the priority. And if people are not your priority, you have the wrong one. I mean, God should be the first priority. He's a person. And then you make other people a priority over the things of this world. And I guarantee you, you'll never regret that decision. But if you've made materialism a priority over people, you'll rue that decision. Number two, the danger of putting wealth first can become the grounds of wrong treatment of others. In other words, what happens is we start taking advantage of people to secure wealth. And how many know that's a, that's a terrible thing to be doing? You know what? If you and I are enriching ourselves at the expense of people, we're actually diminishing ourselves. But if you and I are actually laying down our lives to enrich other people, we don't even realize it, but we're actually enriching ourselves. Because God sees what's happening to our character, and that's very powerful. Maybe this is too, you know, I know I'm sharing a lot of ideas here tonight, but some of you are just like, it's really quiet in here, he's going, Pastor, are you guys getting what I'm saying? How many are catching it? Okay, is this important? Yes, this is the right priority. Let me move on to the third reason why we need to embrace wisdom. It's her value. She is so valuable. 
She benefits us. She helps us to live life well. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. This is what we're talking about tonight. You know, what she brings into our lives is nothing short of an enriched and empowered life. Look at verse 12. I wisdom dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. How many here would like to say, I am a person, I, I have prudence, discretion, and knowledge and understanding in my life? How many think you'd be quite wealthy if you had those things? Isn't that true? And that's what wisdom says she gives us. I'm going, yes. And then she says, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, just those verses, 12 down to verse 14, 12, 13, and 14, that's the benefit of having wisdom. Now, to gain these elements in our lives, we have to acquire divine wisdom. She's promising us these things. I don't know about you, but these are very exciting elements to have in our life. Uh, Dr. Longman points out, that this interesting thought. See, in some translation, the word strength is used rather than power. And he says, this, as he said earlier, this gives us the ability to navigate through life's pitfalls. And these elements would be greatly desired to help us to be successful in life. On this list, the word strength or deborah is the one characteristic that is somewhat surprising. It's another word by which the Hebrew term could be translated or rendered power. The, and here's what I like. Power is the ability to affect change. Now I'm gonna ask a question. How many here you would like to be transformers? Excuse me, you'd like to be change agents in our world. That when you come into a situation, you're, you have the ability to influence the situation. That's power, folks. The ability to affect change. And I wanna just say this. I believe that as children of God, if we walk in divine wisdom, God will give us the ability to change situations that we're walking into. You know, I can look at situations in my own life, and I just, you know, since I've been a young person, a new Christian, I've prayed for divine wisdom. And when I became a pastor, I went, this is way beyond my pay grade. You know, I have to remember, I'm starting out, I'm in my late 20s, early 30s, leading a church. Most people were older than me. A lot of them had way more experience than me, but I prayed for wisdom because I learned something. Wisdom has nothing to do with age. Wisdom, yeah, experience helps, but here's what I'm gonna say. Wisdom means that you're walking in obedience to doing God's will, you're learning who God is, and you're doing what God says. God can give you wisdom to the point where you're influencing people in a very powerful way. And I've seen situations where God gave me wisdom, where I've even stood by myself in front of a whole bunch of Christian leaders and actually swayed all the Christian leaders in a direction. How many think that's power? Don't you think that's power? That comes from wisdom. And that's my prayer for you, that you and I will walk in this kind of wisdom in 2020, that we will so influence our culture this year. Isn't that amazing? That God can help us do that. But it comes from God's kind of wisdom in our lives. You know, wisdom is calling, is calling, is, it's, is, is calling in every aspect of our lives, including the public arena. Look at verse 15. It says, by me kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just or right. They're the right things to do. By me princes govern and nobles all who rule on earth. I'm just thinking, wow. We need leaders today in this culture that have divine wisdom. You see, you say, what's the difference between earthly wisdom and divine wisdom? 
earthly wisdom, the leader is in it for what they get out of it. When you're being controlled by God's wisdom, you're doing what's best for the entire group. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what we really long for, to have these kind of people leading us, people that are concerned about us and our welfare? They're actually serving, and they're not just there to, you know, put themselves up. Isn't that what we want? I think it is. I think Jesus modeled for us the kind of leadership we need to have. Uh, I I like, I'm going to just move past this thing here. Let me just quote Paul Kopic, and I think this is such a good quote. He says, managers can t- take care to work for the good of the company and those placed under their authority. Isn't it great to have a person in charge of a company who's concerned about the well-being of that company and for the people working in that company and for the people they're serving? How many go, that's a great person to have in charge of that company? Isn't that, isn't that what you want? That's what I'm talking about. You know, how about church leaders that commit themselves always to consider people more important than any of the problems they're facing? In other words, people are the most important concern. And I I keep saying this. When we allow, you know, what I call administrative function or bureaucracy to trump over people, we're totally missing the point. Isn't that the truth? People are the most important element in our culture today. And so we need to have a heart after God. We need to have wisdom that comes from God. We need to be concerned about what's happening in people's lives. And parents and teachers should seek to use encouragement more often than coercion. Because you know sometimes as parents we can get lazy. Just tell the kids, smarten up, you know? Instead of really working hard. I think parenting is a hard job. I think you're trying to encourage the child. You're trying to help motivate the child to do the right things rather than just, you know, coercive pressure on them to do what's right. Now, I think there's moments you have to do that. I think there's a moment when someone's rebellious, when they're little, you have to discipline them. I don't have a problem with that. What I'm getting at is it's hard work to actually build people up rather than just use your position of authority to smack them down. Isn't that true? And we've all, how many have ever been around somebody, they're using their position to put people down rather than using their position to elevate and encourage and to challenge and to stimulate and motivate, inspire, you know? And this is what we're talking about. I I just get so excited when I think about divine wisdom because it creates this kind of a context to be living in. And if we're gonna be great parents, if we're gonna be great workers, if we're gonna be great leaders, then we need to operate out of divine wisdom. How many can see that? It's so, it's so uh, clear to me how we need to live. So you go, Pastor, how in the world can I really incorporate wisdom in my life? Can I just say, think about this. You and I, divine wisdom is really getting to know God. How do you get to know God? You gotta spend time with him. How do you spend time with him, Pastor? You gotta spend time in his word. You know, spend time reading the word, praying, studying, praying, communicating, you know, letting the word of God just fill your thinking, your life, your mind, till eventually you start thinking differently than what you thought before. And the scriptures keep inspiring and motivating you and me to do the right things. Isn't that true? And after a while, you know, if you do it enough, it starts to become second nature. Eventually, you might surprise yourself and go, I used to do this, now I'm doing the opposite. And I didn't even think about it. I did the right thing and I didn't even think about it. That tells me that the Spirit of God and the work of God is walking, working deeply in your lives. You know, you think of what Paul writes. You, you, you know, these New Testament writers were filled with the wisdom literature. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 15. He says, don't be unwise, but be wise right? And then he talks about walking in the spirit. So 
when I, what I'm talking about today, this divine wisdom, is really a life in the spirit. It's a life pursuing God. It's a life understanding God's ways. It's a life living in submission to the way God operates in his realm. And that you and I as servants in his kingdom are operating under his, his rulership and his you know, persuasive uh, commitment for us living the right way and doing things rightly. And when we do that, we're honoring God and we're walking in divine wisdom and we're rejecting you know, the me first society that's really destroying our culture, right? Of course. Well, let's stand tonight as we close in prayer. So I just want to just say this. Be very careful, Paul says, then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And then the psalmist says, may we have truth in the inner parts. You know, that's my prayer, that that we so embody the divine wisdom of God. We embrace, we listen to her voice, we're persuaded, you know, we're allowing God to move through our lives. Can I pray for us this year that you and I would walk in divine wisdom? That our lives would be so full of the, the things of God and, and we would desire to please him. That we would be like cream rising to the surface. That we would possess prudence and discretion and understanding and knowledge. That we would know what to do in any and every given situation. Isn't that amazing? And when we don't, we're on our face before God saying, Lord, help me to know your mind in this situation. Help me to be obedient in every context. Even though at times it may be difficult for me. Even though at times it's going against what I naturally would want. But I'm willing to lay down my life. You see, this is... This is called denying ourselves and following Christ. But if we walk in his ways over long periods of time, I'm gonna make a guarantee. I can say this. I've walked with God for over four decades. I've I've endeavored to pursue this course. I've tried to put God above these other things in my life. And can I just say something? That was the wisest thing to do. That was the best thing to do. And every good and perfect gift comes from God. And in his right time, he brings everything you need. But sometimes we get anxious and we take things at the wrong moment and it destroys us. Instead of being a blessing, it brings pain. You know, what am I trying to tell you? Walk in wisdom. Walk in God's wisdom. Learn of his ways. Fill your heart with this. And let God make you the person he wants you to become. And, you know, as I'm praying, I'm just saying, may this church family be so full of divine wisdom that we're going to rise like cream in this culture. And people are going to start coming to you. They're going to look at your life and they're going to go, you know what to do. You always seem to have the right answer. You know, you're going to have people coming to you. You're going to be the counselors. You're going to be the mentors. You're going to be the people that people are turning to because you're leading them to the ultimate one, to God himself which is really what we're talking about. Divine wisdom is actually the fear of the Lord, that you and I are walking with a reverence before Almighty God, honoring him in all we do. Amen? So let's just open our hearts to him tonight. I'm gonna lift my hands. I wanna pray a a prayer of blessing on you. I want God's wisdom to shower your lives. I want you to live in this divine wisdom in 2020. So Father, now as we have discussed the, the power of it, the persuasiveness of it, the dynamic of it. 
Lord, the understanding of it, Lord, I just pray today that we would secure wisdom. As a matter of fact, James reminds us in his letter that if any man or woman lacks wisdom, they can ask of God and that you would give it to us. You're not a partial God. You're impartial. If we lack it, you said ask for it. And you're going to give us your wisdom. But it's a wisdom to help us navigate life wisely, to avoid the pitfalls. Lord, to be people that are favored and blessed by you, people who have answers and hope to give and render in a culture that's despairing and hopeless. Lord, to have the skills and the ability to do what's best, not just for ourselves, but for all around us, that we, rate, we relate and create the context of win-wins and not losses and wins, but that we really have that kind of wisdom, that we can help people through difficult situations and trying situations, that you'll give us that understanding that you'll give us that kind of grasp, oh God, of what to do in every situation because our eyes are fixed on you. That we're walking in humility, which means a deep dependency upon you each and every day. That our priority is being changed and, and that our value system is being shaped by you, Father, so that we're making the right priorities in our lives and making the right choices and decisions in our lives that will bring blessings to our children and to our grandchildren and to their children, Lord, because we have done what is right. Lord, our obedience is now going to produce righteousness in their lives. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Help this congregation to become cream. Help them to become cream, Father. Help them to rise up in a world that's filled with confusion and doubt and unbelief and anger, bitterness, greed, all those ugly things that as human beings we succumb to when sin overtakes us. Lord, I pray that we'll rise above these things and to live with consideration and kindness and goodness and gentleness and peacefulness. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave.